right, you can be seated. Good morning. Good morning to all of the church that's gathered, and good morning to all of the church that is scattered out there in Facebook Live land. Uh, we are hoping that today is going to be the day in the history of the world to this point where more Christians worship with each other digitally than has ever happened at any point in the past. Amen? It's a neat thing that God has provided in this time for us, this kind of technology. So preacher counts kind of work like this. You take a guess at how many people were at church and then you round up a little. Preachers are famous for that, right? You've heard this accusation, yeah? Yeah, so we're just going to guess that today we had one million viewers on Facebook Live. Doesn't that sound about right? Okay. Uh, we are in a strange time, and it's important for us to still be worshiping together as the church. After all, this is what we exist in this world to do. God has left us here in this world for a time to make a difference, to be people of faith and who choose faith and love and service in a world that is broken. And often we don't encounter the brokenness of our world quite as directly as we have in these last few days. And I'm not sure that we've even so much encountered the brokenness face to face as we have the fear of it or the anticipation of brokenness. And so here we are worshiping together as we will, uh, whether we are gathered in big numbers or in small numbers, until the time that the Lord chooses to come again and to take us home. And while we do it, we worship God for all of the reasons that we sang about in these songs, because he's creator, because he's shepherd, and because he provides for us. And so today we're going to open up and look at Psalm 95 together, and we're going to talk about how to be still. Now this is uh, the middle of our series on, on being still. John opened up a few weeks back about why we need to be still. And uh, John, I'm, I'm wearing my shirt with you today right here. We got it going on. Y'all don't know this, but when John preached two weeks ago, he already had a broken collarbone. And he was up here preaching anyways because that's just the tough kind of guy that John is. You can see he's got his cast on right now over his shirt. But we got these shirts. And if you are interested in having one of these, uh, we've put a link up. You probably got it in an email this week. Uh, if you didn't get the email, it's okay. We'll have the link on our website. Uh, it's currently on my Facebook page. You can go if you want to buy one of these. Now, why might you want to have a shirt that says, uh, Be still and know that I'm God, the scripture that Max read this morning? Here's a couple of reasons. It just might be for you an opportunity for public faith. You're wearing your shirt and maybe uh, you have a chance to talk to somebody about what our church is doing right now. And what a great message to be able to share at this time in our world that we are focusing on being still in the presence of God. But even more than that, I think it might do something for you. That when you uh, look in the mirror and you see yourself wearing the, this shirt in the middle of uh, a busy weekend or something like that where you've got a lot of concerns and a lot of things going on in the family schedule and you're still trying to restock the house full of supplies or whatever it may be in the coming days, that you catch yourself feeling a little stressed and hurry sick, just like we talked about last week. And when we find ourselves a little stressed and hurry sick and Maybe you go into the bathroom there, you see the mirror, and you're like, oh, I'm wearing the Be Still shirt. This is, this is a reminder for me, an opportunity to not be hurry sick, not to worry about the traffic and the lines in the supermarket. And boy, if I have never been credited with being a prophet before, last week ought to be the week I get my due. We talked about worrying about shopping lines in neighborhood market, didn't we? 
in the sermon. And then this week, look at what happened. We all were like looking at the lines and what people had in their baskets and wondering, is there enough left? Fear of missing out has been taking over our culture. And so we need this message from God. Right now, we need to remember that God has limitless supply and resources. God always has enough for us. He has love for us and a plan for us. And when we encounter that God, we have resources to be still in front of him. So let's dive into this psalm today and let's see what uh, our creator has planned for us to discover in his word. First of all, this psalm opens with robust and energetic praise. This is a psalm of worshiping the creator God. And so we sang these verses just a minute ago as Michael led us. And let me read them again to you from the New International Version right now. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord and shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. I'm hoping that you will mark or underline that phrase, rock of our salvation, in your Bible or write it on the back of your bulletin because this is a common phrase that's used in the Psalms for God who is our strength and our fortress. In times where we feel vulnerable, in times when we feel weak, in times where we feel as if maybe we won't have enough, God is our rock, a fortress of salvation. But more than that, in this psalm will be a nuanced way that God is the rock for his people. More than being the fortress, but not less than that, he will also do something else for his people. So I want you to mark this phrase and keep your eye out for where we might see God as the rock of salvation in today's readings. Okay, so you've got it marked. Let's read the rest of these verses. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God and the king above all gods. Now this is creation language. In fact, the next lines are explicit. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. All of these lines take us back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 when God is making all things. And the God who makes all things is the God who has the power to renew all things, which means with God we are never going to be without. Maybe in the short term we go without, but in the long term the God who made all things and called them good can make all things new. This is the God that we sing to and worship and praise our saving creator who made the world and who guards it and who keeps it. The New Testament says that through Christ, God made all things through Christ and through Christ now he sustains all things by his powerful word. Here's a picture that we might enjoy looking at for a minute of God's creation, some of his land and some of his sea. I took this picture in 2009 with Kirk Harris, and we were on a trip to Ireland together to see a World Cup qualifier uh, soccer match, football match, between the Irish national team and the Italian national team who had most recently won the World Cup. So we spent a little time driving around for a few days before the game. And we went to a mountain near Westport in Western Ireland called Crowpatrick. Crowpatrick is a mountain that's associated with St. Patrick, who supposedly spent 
a 40-day, 40-night wilderness stay, fasting like Jesus in the desert on top of this mountain. And from the top of the mountain, I took this photograph. This is the bay, and uh, you're looking roughly to the north-northwest here, so the Atlantic Ocean would be off to your left, the mainland of Ireland off to your right. And as we sat up there, we took in this just majestic view. It was a beautiful, clear day. And there were more greens in God's painting of Ireland than I could ever count, far more than any preacher count. More hues of blue and browns than the eye can even fully take in at once. So we sat there for a few minutes and we enjoyed this view. It gave us a moment of serene and still contemplation of God's creation. And I want to share with us this morning, since we're talking about how to be still, a few things that have come into my life since then that might help you, especially if we're spending a little bit more time being uh, socially distant as we pursue stillness in our lives with God. And I'm going to bring my stool here so that I can um, sit down and practice what I preach for just a minute. So these are some teachings that have been brought into my life by valued mentors of mine in the last few years. To help me, a person who often has a lot more uh, anxiety inside than I display outside to be able to come to a place of stillness in the presence of God. And it starts with our physical bodies and our postures somewhat. So here's a few things you may want to write down. I don't know if these will work for you, but they have helped me and maybe some variant of this will help you. I like to sit in a sturdy chair. I try not to be at a couch or something that's too soft and reclining because as soon as I get still for a minute, I'm tempted to take a nap, but also the straight back of the chair and the firm place to sit and somewhere firm to put your feet seems to help you to be able to sit for a few minutes longer than uh, having your legs crossed, for instance, or being slouching. So I get in an upright position with my back straight, and I usually put my hands on my lap just kind of like this, or I fold them in my lap so that they're not distracting me too much and I'm not fidgeting with a a clicky pen or attempted to turn the screen of my phone on over and over. And then I prefer often to close my eyes because I find I get a little too distracted with them open. Some of my mentors who are a little bit better at being present without reacting to things will actually just keep their eyes lidded, uh, by which I mean they're kind of open a little bit and they'll be aware and present in the airport or in the coffee shop or wherever they may be and still noticing visually what they see and yet not reacting to that. I'm just not quite uh, that good at, at not reacting yet. So I'll sit like this, and then I'll uh, take a few breaths. And here's a, here's a way that's easy to remember is 365. <clears throat> 365 means you breathe in for three seconds, just kind of count, hold it for six, and breathe out slowly for five. It's easy to remember because you can do this every day of the year, 365-day breathing practice, just to help you come to a place of calm. So uh, I'm just going to invite you in a second to do this with me. I'm just going to do it once. So I know it's not common to have silence in our preaching, but if ever there was a series for it, this is the one. So I'm just going to go ahead and breathe. You can breathe with me if you want. And I'll do that maybe uh, five or six times, sometimes ten times if I'm feeling a little rushed and harried that day. 
and I'm not necessarily thinking about God yet. I might then at this point start to, though, because I don't want this to be about emptiness and nothingness. So I may pray a short prayer, uh, the Lord's Prayer, or there's some other ones I've committed to memory, or read a short scripture or a Bible verse. And then I'll try to be still for about five minutes. Now, uh, maybe for some of us it would be a good enough goal to make it a minute right now. Maybe we could try a minute this week. I don't know where you're at. I don't mean to impose any kind of burden on you, but five minutes seems to have a lot of, uh, a lot of just healing potential in it. So that's what I do. Sometimes I do longer. Sometimes I you know, have trouble making it that long. And I notice what I notice. Sitting at the holler, the gathering place there in 8th Street Market downtown Bentonville. Notice all kinds of things. I'll sit there for five minutes in silence, and I'll hear keys on keyboards clacking away. I'll hear people starting and ending phone calls. I'll hear somebody sigh heavily a couple tables over. And then I'll start to notice other things that are happening inside. God will remind me of a promise that he made in Scripture that uh, can help me with today's frustrations. Or I'll remember something that I feel guilty about and I'll start to feel ashamed and then I'll have to say, no, we're noticing this. We're not getting into a cycle of shame here. God, I'm still struggling with feeling guilt about that. Would you take that from me? And I deal with my internal things. And after a few minutes, my timer goes off or whatever and I go about my work. Now, I don't know if this will be any help to you at all, but I hope that maybe some of you will take advantage to try it this week. Specifically, we've got an opportunity, being that we're going to be at home a little bit more, to do something like this. And I don't know if there is any place that can make a person more crazy than the frenetic nature of cabin fever when you're home with the whole family and nobody can get out. So you might need this this week. I want to give us an opportunity to think and pray and breathe in this way for a minute before we read the rest of the psalm just so that God can be welcomed by us into our hearts. This is a prayer that you might use as you breathe or use anything that, that is working for you to center your mind on Jesus, to center your mind when you pray or when you're still on the center of reality, which is God who speaks a word of love. I'll ask you to read this out loud with me if you can read it on the screen. This is a prayer associated with St. Patrick. Now, uh, it probably wasn't actually written by him. Uh, it may have been. It's just associated with him. And there's some longer versions, but this is a beautiful short version that maybe he prayed up on that mountain where I sat one time. Read it out loud with me. Christ beside me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ within me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. When you pray a prayer like this and you're coming to a point of stillness in front of God, who knows what he might bring to your attention. But certainly there would be moments when he causes you to think about the people in your world and in your life. What does it mean that Christ is beside me? Well, here I am at home with my family and it's this crazy, hectic, cabin fever state that we're in. But these are Christ to me. Even that moment of recognition can calm our souls. Christ before me in the checkout line with the cart full of bread and toilet paper. 
Christ behind me in the checkout line who also needs some of these resources. Christ within me, how do I respond in times of anxiety? Christ below and above me, those maybe uh, in age who have gone before or who are coming after and watching how I behave. Those maybe with uh, less resources in the economy who are in a lower or higher place of having resources. How do we as a church share things with people who are in need? I don't know what might come to your mind when you pray a prayer such as this. It is deep and rich and has tons of potential. But when we sit for a moment and we contemplate God's goodness and his provision and his resources, we find that he provokes us to all kinds of acts of service, that he calms our hearts in a way that no medicine, no newscast, and no nap by itself can ever do. When I look at this picture, I'm reminded of special moments with my friend Kirk, of moments of insight that God gave me on this trip, and also of a man that we met named John Coleman, who invited us to come down the mountain and join him at his house for tea. I think he was just being polite and did not assume that we would take him up on his offer, especially since he didn't give us his address per se. He did, from the lens of my camera, point out his house on his block in the little village down below the mountain. But when we knocked on his door, I think he was surprised to see that we had taken him up on his offer and we sat down and had a cup of tea in the quiet of this Irish man's home. It's a moment I'll never forget. A, a moment in which the contemplation of the beauty of creation that God had put in front of us led to more human connection, a more meaningful interaction with a person. This is what prayer and stillness and contemplation are always for. Not that we would go off into the desert and stay alone, but that God is preparing us for when we are together and gathered with someone. The scripture that we're reading today, by the way, if this adds anything to our appreciation of what God does, was chosen by me from a reading plan four months ago. Four months before I knew what we would be needing today, God had put a reading plan in front of me. Psalm 95 was one of four options for today that I might have preached from on this topic. Even more impressive is the fact that the reading plan was written 36 years ago, the year I was born. Someone took the time to put together a reading plan for a topic such as this, and they had this scripture chosen in that plan, get this, for this date in 2020, 36 years ago. More impressive are that the people who wrote these psalms, these lyrics and pieces of poetry 2,500 years ago, were writing them when they faced similar circumstances to the ones we face today. And from time immemorial, the Holy Spirit of God has known what we would need today. Wow! What does it mean when we sit and we think about the love of God who would extend a scripture to us with that much forethought and care? Come, let us bow down and worship, the psalmist says. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. He is our God and we the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. He is our loving shepherd. Do you feel loved when you know that from time immemorial the Holy Spirit has planned scriptures like this for your benefit? 
Do you feel loved and fed to know that the psalmist, guided by God's spirit, 2,500 years ago was penning these words, not knowing himself what you would need today, but God having it in mind that you by name would need this today. That 36 years ago, some people putting together not an inspired reading plan, just a great reading plan, wrote down for the date March 15th, 2020, Psalm 95, and that four months ago I chose this reading plan not knowing where we would be today. This is God showing you if you would receive it, his tender and loving care, that he has provision for you and food for you, that he has resources for you, and that he will not let you down. So this week we want to trust God by stepping into his scriptures even a little bit more. As you spend time sitting in your sturdy chair and praying for a few minutes and being silent, you might choose to step into that time of silence by reading along with the whole church these psalms. Today is Psalm 95, of course, it's the one we're preaching from, but we've got uh, in order 96 through 100 for Monday through Friday of this work week. Set aside and dedicated as these wonderful worshiping songs about God that you could read to help quiet your soul, knowing you're doing it in participation with the church. And I'm going to be posting the psalm on my personal Facebook page each day where you can then comment or write a word of praise or a prayer request about what God is doing or about what you're hoping to see him do in our city and in our world and in our families this week so that even though we're the church scattered the rest of the week, we have something in common this word of God entry point into worship. Isn't God's word wonderful? However, this psalm has a part that we don't sing. We sing the first two sections. Yeah, we sing, come, let us worship and bow down. We sing about God being our creator. We sing about God being our shepherd, but I don't know that anybody has written a hymn for the church based on these last few verses. These are the troubling verses. Let me read them for a moment. And let me say as we read them, they're not the bad verses. They're the richest and the deepest in the whole psalm. Today, if you would only hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. As you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said there are people whose hearts go astray. They've not known my ways, so I declared on oath in my anger they shall never enter my rest. It turns out this psalm does have to do with being still. But it has to do with the people who have lost the opportunity to rest with God in his place of rest, which for them, the Israelite people, was the promised land. We sense that these verses are not about us in the direct way they were about the Israelites. When did we do anything at a place called Meribah or a place called Massa? We have no history in these places. These are Israelite failings in the desert, God. These are the moments in Exodus 17 when they've already seen God turn bitter water to clean water. They've already seen God provide manna in the wilderness when they said, we have no food, and he makes this crystalline substance show up on the ground from the dew of the morning. They've already been fed and sated by God, 
And they walk further into the desert and they do not immediately find water and their response is to grumble. It says they quarreled with Moses in Exodus 17. They said things like this, is God really among us or not? Having been fed by him and received from his hand his loving provision, they so quickly doubt when the shelves go empty. Oh, wait, it is about us, isn't it? We're not Meribah, we're not Massa, but we have seen in our day and in this week some reactions to whenever there doesn't seem to be enough. There doesn't seem to be immediately at hand what we had hoped for. The great temptation for these Israelites when they went without water for minutes was to forget that God, the provider, had miraculously given them water already. And all they would need to do is ask, God in heaven, would you give us water again? He would have been pleased to say to them, I've given my servant Moses a really big stick. It's big enough that he can crack open rocks and create aquifers. So watch this and let's enjoy it together. Moses takes a mighty swing. It's like his Babe Ruth moment. Crack! Hits the rock and the water would come out. The Lord in heaven is thinking, if you would have just asked, we could have all enjoyed this as a celebrative triumph of the creator making all things new. But instead, you had to quarrel and grumble against my servant Moses and assume I wasn't with you. And this is the moment that we check our own hearts. We're coming to God in stillness and in prayer. We're reading Psalms and we're ready to receive what God says, and then God says something troubling to us, like, do you really love me? Do you really trust me? And we say, yes, God, I love you. You know that I love you. You know that I love you. And he says again, do you love me? Yes, God. And then we start to wonder ourselves, do I trust him? Do I love him? The great temptation for us when we go without or even when we think we might go without, is to assume that God's not with us any longer. Now, we don't do this overtly. We don't say, God, there's not toilet paper. Where have you gone? We're far, far too modern and empirical in our thinking for that. Oh, no, we blame it on the economy or the production or the hoarders. We have all kinds of things to blame it on, but when our hearts begin to betray us, the truth is what's happening inside that we don't see is we're forgetting who our provider is. Stillness is training for moments like this. When we sit still for a minute and we go without something, we face our fear of missing out. We face our fear of being found out. It is training for we know not what. When we sit still day after day after day and come into the presence of God, he is training us. For five minutes, we're fasting from food and from noise and from conversation. For five minutes, we go without and we are being trained, but we don't know what for until moments come in our world or our homes or our personal health and well-being when we finally have an aha moment and we say, thank God that he has been training me to trust him when I go without for moments like this. You see, the psalm points backwards and forwards. It points backwards to this moment in Exodus 17 and in Deuteronomy 1 when the people have not trusted God because they lacked a resource and a necessary one. But the psalm also points forward 
to what it means for a follower of Jesus to be in the rest that God provides. The Hebrew author will pick up on these same stories and quote this psalm to plead with Christians, be at peace with God, come into his rest, find his salvation, experience the peace of God by choosing to trust him today. We begin to do everything in our power that we can do. We do everything that we are capable of to make sure that everyone has what they need to distribute goods and food, uh, to, to make sure that people have the basic necessities of life. We go shopping, we provide for our homes, and we do all of these things. And then at the end of the day, we say to God, but I trust you. But I trust you. So the Hebrews author will say, Joshua who's Moses' servant and leads the people then. If he could have given them rest, God wouldn't have had to speak about another kind of rest, the kind that you and I long for and hope for. There remains then the Sabbath rest for the people of God. Anyone who enters God's rest, rests from their works. You see, we do everything we can. We buy, we shop, we plan. We take care of the needs of the elderly and the young ones first. We provide for the whole church. We provide for our city. This is what Christians do. If people come knocking on our door because they're without, we're gonna give until we've given out. Amen, church? But then we rest from our works. We say when we've done what we can do, when we've given what we can give, just like God rested from his works, we rest in his hand. And therefore, let us make every effort to enter his rest so that no one will perish by following this example of disobedience, that we see resources running out and we become faithless. The word of God is alive and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. This is where the moment of stillness in the presence of God and reading his word as a preparatory device prepares our hearts to be opened. We talked last week, last week about the fear of being found out. We don't really want people to know our anxieties, our failings, our sins. And yet, just like we read in John chapter 3, verse 21 last week, everything we have done has already been done in the sight of God. Here, the Hebrews author says the same thing in different words. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Now, you can choose to take this as a fearful expectation of judgment and condemnation or as liberation. This can limit your personal freedom or it can give you ultimate liberation. Because when you know that God sees everything, you can try to hide and stay in the dark and run and shelter yourself and pretend that you're not seen and you will always live feeling condemned and limited by God. Or you can say, you mean he's always known? He's always seen my lack of faith. He's always seen my brokenness. He's known from the foundation of the world. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom I have to give account, and he still went to the cross for me. He still loves me because this word that divides the heart and the soul is not just the scripture, although this is useful for helping us to meet the word of God, Jesus Christ, incarnate God in our world. He's with us in the wilderness and in the stillness. He had his 40 days in the desert. There's a story about Patrick that almost nobody really believes, that when he was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, he had this bell called the Kloigenda, and he was attacked by these 
flocks of crows that were demons in disguise. You see how the story starts to get a little weird on us? We're all for Patrick writing a prayer. We're all for Patrick going up and spending 40 days of fasting on the mountain. But he takes the cloigenda, as legend says, and he throws it into the crowd of the birds and it scatters the demons and they fly away and the bell rolls down the mountain, clinging, clanging, ringing. And then he has his silence and his stillness again. But when the birds return, angels bring the bell to the top of the mountain and return it to him. And we go... <laughs> Okay, legends. But I want to ask you, do you expect in the wilderness and in the stillness for God to show up? Or are we still thinking mechanistically and as people who have desaturated all the supernatural from our world? Because Jesus goes for 40 days into the wilderness and he's beset by the devil in some form and fashion. And we hear that story and we go, oh yeah, that one's real. And the devil says to him, you could do this, you could do that, you could test God to see if he'll save you. And he said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. He quotes these very scriptures about Israel when he's beset in the wilderness. Does God show up in silence? Does God show up in fasting? Yes, he's with us for 40 days in the wilderness. But there's more. Remember that rock the rock of our salvation, the rock that Moses strikes with his big old stick is the rock in the wilderness that produces water at God's command for the people. So in Psalm 95, uh, the, the rock of our salvation, and then he does all these other things. He creates the world. He's the shepherd for us and all that. And then we get to Massa and Meribah, and we remember the rock at Massa and Meribah. The one that Moses strikes. Remember that rock of water where there was no resource. Psalm 95 exists to say to the people, before we start griping and grumping and grumbling again, remember the rock. And the rock, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, the Israelites in the wilderness, they were all baptized like we were, but they were baptized under the cloud of God's presence and through the Red Sea. He says they ate the same spiritual food that we eat, he's talking about manna for them but for us it's the word of Christ they drank the same spiritual drink that we drink and he says for they drank from the rock that accompanied them and the rock was Christ with them in the wilderness in their very moment where they think they are so alone and forgotten it's not just a magic stick and rock performance that God has planned for Moses but Christ himself present with his people in the wilderness and every time we get still for five minutes or so and we start to encounter the doubts inside and we start to remember the fears from without, we're reminded by these great testimonies of Scripture that Christ is the rock with you, the rock of our salvation on which we stand as our fortress but also the saving drink that satisfies. And he never leaves. The Jews had a legend. Again, we look at it and we go, pfft. But the Jews had a legend. That the rock that Moses struck in Exodus 17 rolled along with the camp and followed them from site to site for 40 years. We have no record of that in the Bible. It's a Jewish legend. But when Moses is supposed to speak to the rock, 
later in Numbers, and he strikes it again, disobeys God's command, and himself uh, is not allowed to go into the promised land, but has to wait like us for eternity to step into his reward. The Jews said, we know that rock. That's the rock of the presence of God. That is the promise of God with us in the wilderness. And so they had this legend that the rock followed them wherever they went. And we go, you know, whatever. Except Paul says, that rock was the rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. In some way, he was with them through it all. And he's with us too. Amen, church? Amen. Let's stand and sing our final song. And then we'll...